we don't know. We don't trust weathermen, you know, so why should we trust the CBO? They don't trust weathermen. They don't trust the CBO. What next? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, 102.9 FM WLPP. Hope they've got snow shovels up there. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe. Streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us, particularly those of you on the East Coast today uh, who uh, <clears throat> may or may not have believed in weathermen, as, as uh, Jeffrey Lord said there in that opening quote. Uh, if you didn't believe in the weathermen, you should have. Winter Storm Stella as the uh, who is this, the the, the uh, weather channel they're just making up names now for yes, storms that's uh, that is exactly what is going on the national weather service does not like naming winter storms cuz they're not tropical but the weather channel likes to do that makes it easier to keep track or something i don't know that was of course winter storm desi doyen and <laughs> i agree i don't know where this naming thing comes from the weather channel doesn't just get to name stuff well, that they and feel they, like but they are uh, in any event uh, stella as they call it is hammering the northeast right now even as we go to air with uh, huge snow heavy snow intensifying winds and uh, travel disruptions all along the eastern seaboard because of it blizzard warnings continue for parts of nine different states in the northeast from pennsylvania to maine uh, and this, uh, you know what? Well, we're, I think we're having a weather guy on tomorrow's show. I'll ask him about this word. Have you heard this word, bombogenesis? I have. Do you know what it means? But I'm a weather geek, so yeah. So you would know that stuff. Yes, bombogenesis. Uh, what, what is, is uh, I, My, my um, way of putting it would be that's the point at which a storm intensifies very rapidly, like a bomb of energy has gone off inside of it. Uh, but that's impressive. We'll ask the weather guy tomorrow if you were right okay. about that. Uh, widespread, widespread, widespread. Uh, foot uh, snow total accumulations. <laughs> Man, uh, one to two feet of snow in a bunch of different states. Uh, you got 18 inches in Connecticut. You got uh, 16 in Massachusetts, 19 in New Jersey, 24 inches in parts of New York. 
Damascus, Pennsylvania looks like the winner so far with 30 inches of snow. Uh, an incredible snowfall rate, seven inches in one hour in uh, Ilion, New York. Uh, this Seven afternoon. inches an hour. Seven inches in a single hour. That's about 13 miles east of Utica. Uh, Binghamton picked up almost a foot of snow in just four hours today. Uh, also falling quickly in Pennsylvania, wind gusts uh, topping 50 or 60 miles per hour. So, you know, if you're on the East Coast, uh, stay inside, stay warm, stay safe and stay listening to the broadcast. <laughs> your friendly uh, weather, uh, <laughs> your weather radio champion, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what the hell. And uh, also stay are. away from the coast because, man, there's a mean storm surge that this storm is also bringing. It's uh, flooding parts of Atlantic City, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, of course, tens of thousands have lost power in Massachusetts because of high winds, so they can't hear us at all. <laughs> so we, well, if we want to badmouth Massachusetts, now's the now's time. Now's the time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, I, I don't want to uh, – speaking of badmouthing, I don't want to spend uh, too much time on this because we have been covering this a lot lately. Uh, the White House is uh, keeping up its attacks today on the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, which has found – uh, devastatingly, that the Republican health care plan that's supported by Donald Trump and Paul Ryan, et cetera, the, uh, the CBO found, as we uh, reported yesterday as it was breaking, that the uh, Republican health care plan would result in 24 million fewer people with health coverage over the next 10 years. The White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney uh, said on Fox, uh, Welcome to Washington, where the CBO says it's sunny and 75 degrees. I guess he's commenting on the... Uh, the, the the snowstorm that's hitting the East Coast, uh, but the CBO would say, oh, it's sunny and 75 degrees because they get everything wrong. That's today. Today it's the CBO. At the same time, however, as uh, Greg Sargent notes at the Plum Line today at Washington Post, the response from certain GOP senators has been far more cautious than Mick Mulvaney and Sean Spicer and some of the others who are bashing the CBO. Some are saying they have not read the CBO report and they want to reserve judgment, but others are expressing serious worry about the GOP uh, bill's impacts on their states, and well, they should. Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy uh, said that the, re, uh, the report's projection of massive coverage loss is awful. Arizona's John McCain said, I'm very worried about what the House bill would do to Arizona. The disconnect highlights the real significance of the CBO report for the prospects for the GOP health bill, writes Sergeant, and for our politics in a broader sense. The CBO has laid bare the GOP's true health care priorities with a clarity that has long been absent from the political argument over reform, making it harder to conceal them inside a fog of obfuscation and deception. And that is true. For years, the Republicans have been talking about, oh, this is a disaster. Obamacare is, is horrible. We need a better plan that provides more coverage for more people. And now that they have the actual opportunity to do that, and now that it is actually being scored by the CBO and we can see what the Republican health care plan would do, well, we're learning uh, just, you know, in stark terms uh, how many people would be harmed by this bill. <clears throat> 
Uh, uh, Sargent goes on to say senators who are now expressing concern about losing their state's expansions have been supporters of repeal during the 2014 elections. Multiple GOP Senate candidates ran on repeal while dissembling and evading endlessly on whether they'd also support rolling back their state's Medicaid expansions. That also came with the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, giving uh, access to health care for some 11 million people in those states that uh, uh, allowed that expansion. The basic party-wide argument has been that if only Republicans could do away with the hated monstrosity of Obamacare, they'd be able to deliver a replacement that delivers health care to everybody, including the poor and the sick, while lowering costs and cutting taxes and getting rid of Washington mandates. In other words, a plan that delivers the good stuff in the Affordable Care Act without any of the bad. As long as repeal was not an actual possibility, Republicans could maintain this stance without having to create a plan that would accomplish this or answer for that plan's likely outcomes or the true priorities that it reflects. And now, thanks to the CBO, Sergeant writes, that years-long dodge is no longer possible. He says it's hard to say whether this will end up forcing GOP senators to turn on the plan in large enough numbers to kill it, but at least it will be harder for them and for Trump to evade responsibility for what their party's plan would actually do. Or they could just pretend that none of this stuff is actually happening. Uh, <laughs> the doctors and nurses and hospitals and insurers and Republicans and Democrats and millions of Americans who stand to lose their health coverage that they don't actually oppose this plan. They could just pretend that. They could pretend that all of the facts are fake, that there are alternative facts, if you will. That's what White House spokesman Sean Spicer seems to be uh, trying to do at this point. If you're looking at the CBO for accuracy, you're looking in the wrong place. Yeah, just don't even look at the CBO. They don't know what they're doing. They're a bunch of hacks. There's also Tom Price, uh, Dr. Tom Price, I should add. He's now the health, uh, the head of the Health and Human Services uh, uh, department for Donald Trump. He also says that the CBO are are not these are not the droids you're looking for. We disagree strenuously uh, with, uh, with with the report that was put out. We believe that our plan will cover more individuals at a lower cost and give them the choices that they want for the coverage that they want for themselves and for the fam their family. Not that the government forces them to buy. Well, they better be careful because if this plan actually does pass, uh, we're going to see a lot of pain from a lot of people. And the CBO says as many as 14 million could uh, lose their health coverage in 2018 alone. 2018, I think that's an election year. Office of uh, Management, the White House Office of Management and Budget, uh, uh, the director, Mick Mulvaney, said the office shouldn't even score the bill. He said uh, recently on ABC News that it's something that they're simply not capable of doing. They just can't do it. Meanwhile, a White House analysis of the Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare shows even steeper coverage losses than the projection by the CBO. That, according to a document viewed by Politico on Monday, this is from Paul Demko of Politico, uh, he reports the, prelim the preliminary analysis from the Office of Management and Budget, that's Mick Mulvaney's office, they had forecast that 26 million people would lose coverage over the next decade. That's more than the 24 million that the CBO had estimated. 
Now, Politico says they saw this report. They didn't include this report in their article. So we can only go by what they say. White House officials late Monday night after this uh, political report came out disputed that that document was an analysis of the bill's coverage effects. Instead, they say it was an attempt by the OMB to predict what CBO's scorekeepers would actually conclude when they came out with, uh, with, with their findings. Uh, White House Communications Director Michael Dubke told Politico this is not an analysis of the bill in any way whatsoever. This is just the OMB trying to project what the CBO would score using CBO's methodology. The analysis found that under the uh, the uh, American Health Care Act, the coverage losses would include 17 million for Medicaid, 6 million in the individual market and 3 million in employer based plans. A total of 54 million individuals would be uninsured in 2026 under the GOP plan that according to this White House analysis as reported by Politico. That's nearly double the number uh, projected under the current laws to ha- uh, under the current law to have uh, no insurance coverage by 2026. Washington Post uh, said, uh, well, reports that the White House uh, press secretary Sean Spicer tweeted today that Politico's story is totally misleading. The projection was of what the CBO would conclude. It was not the White House analysis. In the meantime, uh, Secretary uh, Tom Price, a uh, former congressman from Georgia, he was heavily involved in the selection of the current CBO director, Keith Hall, back in 2015. At the time, he was uh, he was the chairman of the House Budget Committee, and he put out a statement back in 2015 for Keith Hall, who now uh, authored this report at the CBO. He said Keith Hall will bring an impressive level of economic expertise and experience to the Congressional Budget Office. Throughout his career, he has served in both the public and private sector under presidents of both parties and in roles that make him well-suited to lead the CBO. In particular... During his time at the U.S. International Trade Commission, Dr. Hall has worked on providing Congress with nonpartisan economic analyses and uh, a role similar to the responsibilities he will now assume as CBO director. That was Tom Price, then as Congressman Tom Price, now as head of HHS Tom Price, uh, just uh, destroying the CBO as far as he's concerned, saying pay no attention uh, to what the CBO has to say about this bill. It is fabulous. It is wonderful. But, you know, this is not about what the Republican health care plan will do or won't do in truth. All of this that's going on, all what we're seeing, Trump's uh, attacks on the media, Republicans attacks on the media, on science, on everything else. This is all of this is an assault on the referees themselves. This is an assault on the institutions that we rely on to make sense of our nation, of our democracy. In this case, it's now the institution of the Congressional Budget Office that is under fire. But as I say, it's, you know, all of our institutions in this country, the media, uh, academics, science. We are now beyond facts and the fight over them. We're in uh, what I think my guest coming up uh, suggests is a whole different place altogether in our nation. And that's coming up next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. They are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. That, of course, is Tiny Tim, way, way, way back in 1968, uh, warning that the icebergs were melting. And here we are in 2017, and we are still arguing about that basic fact of science and uh, what and who is to blame for it. At least some are, anyway. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, Award-winning political cartoonist and columnist Tom Tolles wrote last week in the Washington Post, Every minute President Trump is in office, more damage is done to the United States. We are supposed to be comforted by the institutional checks and balances. We are supposed to derive solace from the fact that there will be future elections. We're supposed to be heartened by the knowledge that what he does can be undone. But Tom, uh, Tom Toll says maybe not so much. The GOP Trump project is simultaneously jackhammering the foundation stones beneath the entire American project. They are pulverizing basic respect for facts and scientific methodology, along with fundamental deference to truth. They are mixing the dust into a muddy slurry. And this is their idea of the swamp they have come to drain away. It is not particular facts that they are out to destroy. It is the whole system of facts. And once that is gone, it is a long, long time before you get it back. It's not that they don't know. Ignorance is, in theory, anyway, correctable. It's that they don't want to know, and they don't want you to know either. But it goes beyond even that, Tolls writes. It is a policy of destroying the very ideas that facts are knowable or that facts exist independently from assertion. This disease has been incubating for some time, but now we have an administration prepared to go all in. Lies are the carbon dioxide we are pumping into our political system now, and the damage is cumulative. Tolls was responding to the comments by Scott Pruitt, former Oklahoma attorney general and longtime opponent of the Environmental Protection Agency, who, incredibly enough, now heads up the Environmental Protection Agency for the Trump administration. We played Pruitt's comments earlier this week, but I will play them again here. Uh, they were made in response to a question from CNBC's Joe Kernan, who also played along with Pruitt's pretend and completely fallacious claim that carbon dioxide is not the primary mechanism behind man-made climate change. Do you believe that it's been proven that CO2 is the primary control knob for climate. Do you believe that? No, I, no, I think that, that measuring with precision uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do and there's trem tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. Uh, so, so no, I would not agree uh, that it's a primary contributor uh, to, the, to the global warming that we see. Okay. All right, but we don't know that yet as far as we, we, need, to, we need to continue the debate and to continue the review and the analysis. 
It's 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 a. I agree. When I hear the science is settled, it's like I I never heard that science actually gotten to a point where it was. So that's that's the whole point of science. Really? Is that uh, you, you keep asking heard that, questions. Joe? You keep asking questions, but uh. I don't want to be called a denier. So uh, you know, it scares me. It's it's a terrible thing to be called. Anyway, Administrator Pruitt, I know you don't want to be called that either. Um, thanks for being with us this morning. I appreciate it. That was denier. Joe Kernan of CNBC, uh, who actually has a show on television every day that some people actually watch. Uh, He was speaking, of course, with uh, the administrator of the uh, EPA, Donald Trump's administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, who was also a denier. They were both denying what science has known for years, that CO2 is the primary contributor to climate change and global warming. Responding over at Vox.com to this entire fine mess and to the same thing that uh, Tom Tolles was writing about, David Roberts notes that while Pruitt is denying very basic climate science, most of the outrage about his remarks uh, is missing the point. It's not about Pruitt, he explains, and it's not even about facts. Well, then, what is it about David Roberts? Joining us to explain what it's about is our old friend David Roberts. He focuses on politics, climate and energy and the confluence thereof over at Fox.com. He is uh, Vox.com. Big difference. Sorry, David. Uh, He has has focused on the issue for a decade now, uh, spending many years writing at Grist.com and uh, has contributed to or been featured in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Fast Company, Huffington Post, Wired, and everywhere else. David Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. For clarity, not Fox, but Vox, right? That's not the first time I've run into that problem, you can imagine. Uh, so sorry. All right, uh, listen, I could tell from your story on this, and, and frankly from what much of what you've written in, in recent years, that you could not be more tired and or bored uh, with responding to uh, dishonest climate deniers like Pruitt. And I want to throw Kernan in there, too, by the way. So I join you in that. But but as uh, Desi Doyen here always likes to say, I think she's citing Frank Luntz when she says it. Uh, you have to keep repeating it and repeating it until you're tired of repeating it. And only then do folks start to hear it. So I promise uh, to, to get to the more interesting po- uh, part of your article here shortly, David. But very quickly, can you explain why Pru- Pruitt is wrong and more interest, interestingly, why we know that he knows that he is wrong. <laughs> well, I cannot claim with any certainty to know what Pruitt knows that he knows. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you can. I wouldn't want to speculate what goes on in his brain. But, okay. But I mean, in terms of, I mean, this is, I mean, this is what I, this is what I sort of tell average people on the street when they ask me about this. There's tons of, there's tons of stuff that we don't know about climate change. We're very hazy on what's going to happen, for one thing, and, and that's and, and so we can, we can <clears throat> predict what's going to happen over a 100-year time scale fairly easily, but shrinking that down to predicting what's going to happen in 10 years or mm-hmm. 20 or what's going to happen in a particular region as opposed to, say, the world, mm-hmm. um, that kind of granularity in predicting the effects of climate is very difficult. There's tons of uncertainty, and there's tons of uncertainty about um, how economics are going are gonna to interact with uh, uh, CO2 mm-hmm. and, and climate and how, you know, there's, the, we're wallowing in uncertainty. But the one thing 
that we do know <laughs> very, very, very well is that more or less all of the recent warming in global average temperatures in the 20th century is a result of human beings emitting greenhouse gases. That, that core fact we know with extreme confidence. I mean, scientists, I don't know if you hang out with scientists much, but they do not speak in absolutes. They will not say that we know anything. They uh, like to speak in terms of probabilities. Mm -hmm. And the scientists got together and have discussed this to the ends of the earth, and they now say it is very likely, which means 95% plus confidence, that human beings are driving warming with CO2. <clears throat> of all the things we don't know, that is the one thing that we do absolutely know. And furthermore, there is zero chance that Scott Pruitt does not, is not familiar mm -hmm. with that science, because it's, it is, it is, I mean, in a one-paragraph summary of climate change science, mm -hmm. that's going to be the first sentence. That's the first thing you see if you scratch the surface of this. So there's no way he's not familiar with that science. So, so you, you know, you can see him and the, and the host both kind of wiggling around. Mm -hmm. And you saw the same thing Tillerson did, Rex Tillerson did at his confirmation hearing right. a couple weeks ago, kind of trying to wiggle around and, and deny without quite denying, because, as they said, they don't want to be called denier. It's a mean term. It's an ugly term. It's politically uh, inconvenient. So they want to wiggle around enough to get out of it. But I think Pruitt, what Pruitt did is just was unsophisticated in his wiggling. <laughs> yeah, he accidentally went out and came out and said something that is just absolutely demonstrably false. And that's why I think there was this big... There was this big uh, outrage and kickback, but but again, uh, you know, uh, speaking to your point about being bored and sick of doing this, we have known that that core fact that human greenhouse gas emissions are driving mm -hmm. recent warming. We've known that for decades. That hasn't been in serious doubt in decades. So you know, to get you, you and know, to get. To and get that, past the science, like if the science was going to settle anything, it would have settled it by now. And that's what I mean by uh, knowing what he knows. He knows what the science is. I guess he can uh, choose to either not believe the science or to pretend that he doesn't believe the science. But he knows, he must know, he certainly must know uh, what the science, the existing science, actually says and does not say. Um, but okay, so uh, thank you for uh, uh, putting that uh, to bed for the moment. You charge in your in your piece at Vox that the that the folks who are outraged about uh, Pruitt's comments are missing two key points. Um, so let's go through them. Uh, the first one, it, it's not about Pruitt, you write, at all. It's about the Republican Party itself. What does that mean? Yeah, so, I mean, um, I want to be careful about saying people miss the point. I, I, the way I put it is, I think these points get underemphasized. Okay. Everybody goes straight to explaining the science right. again. So, so the, it's like the discussion never really gets any deeper than that. So that was my attempt is just to sort of push a little and, mm -hmm. and talk about deeper structural factors. And so when I say, you know, people act as though they were shocked and outraged <clears throat> that a climate-denying president who's running a climate-denying administration 
and is backed by a climate-denying political party, mm-hmm. put a climate denier in charge of EPA. Right. But uh, of course he did. That is the institutional stance of the Republican Party. They're not going to they're not going to say we don't believe it, but in this one position that most directly, you know, mm-hmm. relates to it, we're going to we're going to wink and put somebody who really believes it because we know we're bull- when we say otherwise. They're not they're not going to do that. They really believe it. So, you know, so the idea that Scott Pruitt is some sort of that his individual beliefs are somehow at issue here is just it's just pointless. If it wasn't Scott Pruitt, it would be somebody else who denies climate change. That's what the party is. It's one major party in the U.S. alone among major parties in the developed democratic world alone, completely idiosyncratic and unique in this, denies that the climate that climate change is happening and that humans are causing it. So, so I mean, if Pruitt outrages you, the proper, you know, the proper target of your outrage is the party. He's just a party functionary. If yeah. it wasn't him, it would be somebody else. Well, you're right, and uh, they've put in uh, similar deniers. You mentioned uh, uh, Rex Tillerson, uh, although the uh, question is how much he actually denies. Actually, the question for all of these guys is how much do they actually deny, and how much are they denying because it is simply their job to deny, as you uh, describe uh, you know, Pruitt here as a functionary chosen to dismantle the EPA regulations on greenhouse gases, and it would be someone else. Uh, and, and I never know that. I, I may have even asked you this before, but, uh, you know, do you have any sense of how much these guys actually believe their own nonsense? Because uh, I wonder, you know, they have been repeating this stuff for so long, cherry-picking, uh, you know, uh, d- d- responses to uh, climate change and global warming. Um, and it makes me wonder, you know, have they gotten high on their own supply at this point? Do they actually think either this isn't happening or the new, the new phase that they seem to be in, it's happening, but uh, the climate, it always changes. We have no idea how much man has to do with it. There's no evidence and so on and so forth. Do you have yeah, any sense I mean, of their I mind? Know, I don't know. Speculation about this is endless, but I think the, the right way to understand it is, let's put it this way, if you're an anthropologist trying to approach this tribe and decode what's motivating it from its behavior... I think what you would conclude about the Republican Party is the left, <laughs> they see, the way they see it, the left wants bigger government with more control over the economy, mm-hmm. with, with sectors and industries that support the left being, you know, advantaged, and sectors that don't support the left being punished. That's what they see the left wanting to do, and they want to do the opposite. <laughs> they, they want to advantage the sectors and industries that support them and hurt their opponents. So that, I think, in the Republican, in today's Republican mind, is the, is the, primary, is the primary fight. <clears throat> so the question of how to deploy facts or science or arguments about, about science in service of that, right, it's, it's that that's primary, and the arguments are secondary. Mm. This is what I try to say in the piece. Mm-hmm. So the, the primary thing is don't regulate, <laughs> right? right? Don't tax more. 
continue subsidizing fossil fuels. The primary thing is policy that supports their their constituents and and donors, and right? The, and, and and they just retrofit they retrofit scientific arguments to fit that goal. So I don't think they believe it. I mean, a lot of them, I just don't think they believe it or don't believe it in the way you and I think about believing things. I think to them, they believe they don't want the left taking over the economy. And they will say whatever is useful or utilitarian to say in service of that goal. So, and so I, 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 in a lot of ways, I think sort of asking like whether they really believe it as, as in the way we think of believing science as evaluating evidence and drawing conclusions about the facts without your preferences, you, you know, distorting your perspective. I just don't think they approach it that way. You're right. I don't think I, they think that way. You're right. Yeah, no, you make a good point. Uh, they have their, their policy goals, and they sort of reverse engineer whatever they need to say and do to, to get to that goal. And it's not just about climate, which is why I want to get to uh, your your second point here, but before I do, I just want to reserve some ire here uh, for for CNBC's <laughs> Joe Kernan because I can understand in in one sense why Republicans you spelled it out very smartly there, David Roberts, uh, my, why they you know might want to uh, get to their policy goal, pay back their contributors, but for someone in the media. No, you know, no matter how much advertising money they get, you know, from Exxon Mobil, et cetera. But for someone in the media, supposedly news media to say, oh, I haven't seen any such science that uh, conclusively, uh, you know, comes to this end. I, I feel there needs to be some sort of punishment for CNBC, for NBC, for Kernan, uh, for the people that even allow such blatant disinformation over the airwaves, because that's the media, David. I, I, you know, I, I, that that's almost more maddening than when we see politicians do it. Uh, well, am I overstating I mean, that? Uh, uh, I think um, there's a lot to say about that. But one thing to say is anybody who's tuning in to CNBC to get their <laughs> to get their facts on climate change is is probably forlorn to begin with. But but no, but they are giving the f- they are giving facts out to a huge group of people. I don't know. You're right. Maybe it's for a, a, another day. It just makes me absolutely crazy. You know, uh, the, you know, w- without an informed electorate, we are completely screwed. And well, I mean, this is kind of this is getting at the point we're about to discuss. Yeah. But but I think what this sh- what this just shows is that the strengths. <clears throat> There used to be, um, I feel like, stronger institutions and norms that sort of bridged the two parties, mm-hmm. right? Like, we disagree on this and this and this, but we are united in, say, I don't know, just to pick, a, pick, pick something out of a hat, equality under law, mm-hmm. right? And that's not a partisan thing. Mm-hmm. It's just an American liberal democracy thing. In theory. We will, we will fight it out within this boundary of contested issues but we will together respect these tra- these traditions and norms and institutions that bridge the parties. So what I just I, I think what's happened is that political polarization over the last I don't know several decades now has just cut like acid through that stuff now, and there's almost nothing left that still bridges the two parties. And I and and, and we're talking about basic respect mm-hmm. for fact, science. You know, uh, rule of law, tr- 
traditions and norms of, of governance in, in the Senate and Congress. I mean, you could name anything you want, but polarization has just dominated all those. And so even lots of journalists now, and even lots of these talking head guys, they're on a team. They see themselves as being on a team. Mm. And that guy, Kernan, mm-hmm. sees himself, I'm sure, on the conservative team. And if you're on that team, you adopt that team's Mm. You know, rallying yeah. cries, and that that means more than respect for some sort of transpartisan authority of science. It means more than anything these days. You're you're uh, you point out, and we'll get. This is the step, uh, the the second point here. You write that it's not about facts; it's about institutions. And and you're right, the the polarization, the divisiveness, that has been going on for a long time. But it does seem like we are now into a new phase. And you offer a fantastic uh, uh, metaphor for this. Um, you say that the climate fight has long since moved past the state when it was about facts. Uh, and then you offer this metaphor. Can you can you share that or uh, sure? Because it's sure. really uh, no, because it's a really good one. And, and so I want to let you put it in your right. own words. So so, well, here, here's the metaphor. Say you're playing a basketball game, and your uh, your opponent commits some violation, travels, whatever, mm-hmm. and the referee blows his whistle, and the, and the guy who traveled says, eh, "Screw you! I don't care what you say," and just keeps going and refuses to surrender the ball. And then does that again and again. And then the other team starts putting extra players on the court. And all the while, the referee is blowing his whistle, calling violations. And the other team just says, oh, we don't care. Yep. We don't care what the referee says. We don't. And, and then they start saying, oh, well, my friend Bob here in the stands said there was no foul. So you say there's a foul. And our guy Bob says there's no foul. So it's just your word against ours. Right. So, so the, the, the point there being, if you're in that situation, the dispute you're having is no longer about what happened in particular plays or who did what in a particular instance. It's not really anymore about what's going on in the court. The dispute is about whether the referee has authority, right? The, the, yeah. the dispute is about the, the authority of the referee. Can the referee make these calls and will both teams respect the calls he makes because if if one team just decides they don't respect the calls of the referee then you're in seriously deep questions like how can we play this game at all what is it even a game anymore if there are no rules that are respected on both sides are we now not playing a game anymore we're just having some sort of animal contest of power. If there are no rules, then the only thing that's going to determine who wins is, is literally who's physically stronger. So, so at this point, quibbling about, and so just to draw the analogy back mm-hmm. to, the, to the real world, this now is about the authority of science and scientific institutions as referees. Mm-hmm. This is sort of how they're set up in our society, is we, we design these institutions and, and, and develop norms governing how people in those institutions behave. So, you know, norms about, you, you know, you, do an ex- you, you document your experiment. The results have to be reproducible. You know, you can't get published in a major, uh, major review with, uh, or a major journal without peer review. Like, you're not supposed to have financial 
connections to the subjects of your study, all mm-hmm. these kind of rules that govern the practice of science, right? We set these up and then agree across party lines, we're going to accept the scientific knowledge that these institutions and norms produce. That's how, that, that's how, that's how we survive as a society. We have to have some shared, right, some shared basis of, of factual knowledge. And so, and so the question is, and this is what I mean about quibbling about facts with Pruitt. When I say human beings are causing climate change with their CO2, I don't mean I've gone out and done experiments, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mean that I've gone out and like literally directly learned that. What I mean is that's what science produced. That's what science and scientific institutions have concluded and I'm accepting their results. That's what the referee it's, said. That's what the, yeah, the other that's referee, referee, that's said. what the, the judges said. said. Yeah. Happening, so we have to accept it. And, and what Pruitt's doing is, is just saying, or what, what the Republican Party is doing, mm-hmm. is just saying, well, screw that. I don't accept the referee's authority. We have our, we have our counter-authorities. We have Joe Schmo, who you know, has disproven climate change for the Heritage Foundation or whatever. So, so the point being, the crisis here is no longer about the facts of climate change, the crisis here is, do, are we going to, across party lines, accept the authority of science? And that's, it's not that's just... the crucial thing at issue now. And, and it's not, David, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's not just science facts, uh, this assault on institutions. It seems like uh, this is, you know, uh, we've been talking about the, the, the Republican Health Care Act, now the assault on the, uh, the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, is famous for assaulting the news media, you know, as, uh, as an institution, saying that they cannot be trusted. We're seeing this across the board. This is an incredible... Oh, but I'd want to emphasize yeah. And I, I want to emphasize this a million times. This is not new to Trump. The, r- right. the right wing has been saying for years, science is corrupted. Academia is corrupted. The press is corrupted. Government is corrupted. You can't trust any of these institutions anymore. So, of course, the ground is, has been laid for this. So, yeah, so, I mean, anytime this is something I got into in this longer piece I'm writing, but any political authoritarian or aspiring authoritarian who comes into power in a place in, in, in a country and this is and we're seeing this because you know we're seeing the rise of these populist authoritarians all over the world right now this is mm-hmm. not confined to the US you know it's mm-hmm. Hungary and the Philippines and Poland and all over the place Turkey but they all have a few things in common, and one of the things they all do when they get into power, the first thing they do is they go after institutions that claim some sort of transpartisan authority, because those kind of institutions are a direct threat to any authoritarian. The authoritarian needs people to see society as a zero-sum contest, right? My tribe versus your tribe. There's no authorities that apply to us both. It's just dog-eat-dog. Dog. And so that's what they're... And so you're either on my side or you're on the enemy's side. David, what I, every authoritarian tries to do, and it's, of course, exactly... I mean, I don't think Trump's smart enough to be some sort of Machiavellian about it, but he's got this animal instinct for it. And the very first thing he's done is say the press is not has no transpartisan authority. They're on the left side. They're on the Democrats' side. David, he's trying to, and he said the same thing about the courts. He said the same 
thing about, uh, you know, like you say, the CBO. Yeah, no, he, he's, it, it. The, you're right. And it's not just Trump, it's the Republicans. David, I've just got a minute or so left, so I'm going to ask you. Uh, Sorry, talk uh, too much. No, no, that's okay. I, I've got two impossible questions for you to answer in that minute, but I'm going to let you okay. do your best uh, to at least point us in the right direction. How do we navigate our way out of this now that this assault is underway? I, I know that's a ridiculous question to ask with this much time left, but, but <laughs> well, good luck. The short answer is I don't know. The longer answer is, I think it begins by everyone renewing their appreciation for institutions and norms, their awareness of them, and start thinking about how we can all act to strengthen those institutions and norms that are so under attack. You know, like you've seen a lot of people sort of rising up and spontaneously um, you know, subscribing to the to the to the Washington Post or, mm-hmm. or the New York Times. I think there is some sense in the public of what's happening, and some sense that the public needs to rise up and defend institutions and norms. It's just people don't have a great sense of how to do it. So I think just thinking of it in those terms will help clarify things. Very good. Well done. Uh, so well done that I don't have time for the second question, which was about <laughs> some good news. But we'll, we'll hit that again in the future. David Roberts of Vox, V-O-X dot com. Uh, you can find him. You should find him over at Vox dot com uh, and on the Twitters at D.R. Vox. David, great talking to you, my friend. Hope we get to do it again soon. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this and maybe the stuff I didn't have time to ask David Roberts about. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Please. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, I, uh, Desi, uh, that conversation with David Roberts is so distressing I on know. so many levels. I know, and I know. We have a bigger problem. We need a bigger boat. We do. <laughs> but wh- another reason why it's also distressing is, in fact, there is all this fantastic, amazing, excellent, very good news going on when it comes to things like renewable energy. The fact that we are fighting about this nonsense, right. uh, you know, is just so distressing if you look at the facts. Uh, Joe Rome, 
who we've had on this show many times uh, in the past, uh, writing over at Climate Progress, uh, cites this report from the Solar Energy Industries Association. And mind you, Joe Rome is an actual scientist. An actual scientist who used to work for the uh, Department of Energy, Assistant Secretary of Energy. He's a physicist. He knows his stuff. Therefore, don't pay any attention (laughs) to any of this stuff coming from Joe Rome. Uh, The United States installed a record-smashing 14,762 megawatts of solar power in 2016. That's a 97% jump over 2015. That, according to data released uh, last week, the industry reports uh, that for the first time ever, solar solar was the number one source of new generating capacity, beating out uh, both wind and gas. And they've got this. Uh, he's got this chart uh, from this report from the Solar uh, Energy Industries Association. Uh, showing just this huge, it's been, solar uh, installations have been increasing uh, sort of slowly but surely since 2008, uh, getting more and more, more quickly, and then boom, just in 2016, it absolutely just Oh yeah, it dwarfs the rest of the chart. I mean, you have to actually, they had to actually extend the chart in order to show just how much 2016 has grown over just 2015. This report predicts that, uh, quote, total installed U.S. solar capacity is expected to nearly triple over the next five years. The report is uh, full of amazing charts, he notes, factoids about the industry's growth. For instance, on average in 2016, a new megawatt of solar capacity came online every 36 minutes. That's uh, 40 megawatts a day. The price for solar systems fell nearly 20% last year, the greatest average year-over-year uh, price decline since the report began tracking such prices. That That is on top of an 80% price drop that occurred from 2008 to 2015. This is all really good. Uh, but here, it gets better. That and, and this is something you would think Donald Trump would want to jump in and somehow take credit for. If he wants to, fine, let him. Uh, The new report comes on the heels of news that more than 200,000 people now work in the U.S. solar industry. And it's a major industry milestone that new uh, that new installed solar capacity topped new capacity from either wind or gas. Ultimately, the ongoing price drops in solar, coupled with the equally remarkable price drops in battery storage and the ever more visible impacts of carbon pollution, mean that renewables must inevitably beat fossil fuels even in this country. But by putting his thumb on the scale against solar, Rome writes, uh, President Trump can certainly slow the transition and ensure other countries reap the biggest benefits. Trump, after all, campaigned on zeroing out clean energy funding, rolling back climate action, boosting coal use. Bloomberg reports uh, recently that the White House is planning to slash the budget of the Energy Department, uh, the specific office that helps develop and advance clean energy. If Team Trump also succeeds in revoking the EPA's clean power plan, Rome writes, that could give a temporary boost to coal and gas domestically, but it is only temporary. Yeah, those jobs in coal are not going to come back. That They've been basically decimated by 
automation, not just competition in the market, but automation as well in coal. But the jobs are coming back uh, big time when it comes to renewable energy, as this report shows yet again. Donald Trump could jump right on in here and take credit for all of this, all of these new jobs that we now know are going to be coming online. All of this solar power that is coming online, whether... He slows it, whether Trump slows it down or not, this is going to happen. The rest of the world is going to do it. We're going to, you know, lose out to the rest of the world, but it is going to happen. Yeah, this is a race to sell the technology to the rest of the world, not just, you know, homegrown domestic manufacturers putting solar panels on rooftops that cannot be shipped to China. So you can't get other countries to put the solar panels on your roof. Exactly. You know, this is a long term infrastructure that that could, if you as you've mentioned, that Trump could take credit for. But he's instead focusing on the fossil fuel industry and building what's going to be. Yeah, those are going to be obsolete obsolete very soon you know hopefully within our lifetimes if we're all very those lucky. are his people those and are his is is uh, is secretary of state of course comes from exxon mobil i got a story on that i want to try to get to it in a okay. quick moment uh, have, but just real quick yeah. that china has on the books plans to install enough solar over the next year to actually equal the capacity of what france and germany already have installed right now Sales also of uh, plug-in electric vehicles were up uh, $2.5 billion. That's a 48% increase uh, last year. Investment in uh, charging infrastructure is up 11% over last year. Trump wants to do this big infrastructure plan. Why not charging infrastructure all over the country? And why aren't unions? I think I'm surprised that unions are not getting more involved. The uh, trade unions that in are building engineering, uh, electricians, all of those unions, it seems like they would also be making a push for this kind of infrastructure because retrofitting, oh, I don't know, every single home in America seems like it would be a big jobs program. This uh, charging uh, infrastructure, by the way, up 11 percent, that's a 600 percent increase since 2011. This is a booming business. Uh, 2016 was a very good year for the advanced energy economy. Uh, It's not a culture war. It's an industry. Uh, The group says uh, there are different ways of viewing uh, the industry than AEEs. Uh, But just about any way you slice it, the story is the same. Rapid growth and lots of jobs. But, of course, ignore those jobs. Let's bring back the coal (laughs) miners. All right, very quickly here, uh, speaking of the coal miners, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson used an alias, an email alias, to discuss climate change while he was ExxonMobil Corp's Chief Executive uh, Officer, his uh, his email alias, Wayne Tracker. <laughs> that just sounds like a porn name or something. Uh, Tillerson sent messages from the account to discuss the risks posed by climate change, according to New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, in a court filing about... Uh, his office's fraud investigation of ExxonMobil. Tillerson, whose middle name is Wayne, used the, the Wayne Tracker account on the Exxon system from at least 2008 to 2015, but apparently forgot to turn over these documents. Uh, Schneiderman uh, made the claim in a letter this week to the judge uh, in the New York, New York State uh, uh, court case in Manhattan, accusing Exxon of failing to turn over all relevant documents required by a court order. The filing comes in this protracted legal dispute, Bloomberg uh, reports, in which Exxon seeks to derail 
probes by both the New York and Massachusetts attorney generals into whether the company misled investors for years about the possible impact of climate change on its business. Lock them up. I guess uh, that's what happens when yeah. you hide your. Now, uh, of course, it's, uh, you know, different hiding a, a, an email account like that when you're in uh, private business. You can sort of do whatever you want. But when you got a court case. Yeah, courts do not look kindly no. upon uh, withholding evidence, especially when it's been ordered by a judge that you turn that in. This is a court case that we have been reporting on since it began, uh, you know, based on the investigation by InsideClimateNews.org and a separate investigation by Los Angeles Times and Columbia University that found uncovered documents from Exxon from way back in the 70s and the 80s showing that their own scientists told Exxon executives that burning fossil fuels, Exxon's own product, was going to cause dangerous global warming. And Exxon, instead of doing something about it, Exxon chose to spend millions of dollars over decades lying to the American public and, in this case, potentially misleading their investors. Uh, That's against New York state law. And now uh, apparently hiding documents from the uh, New York attorney general. Uh, Bloomberg uh, cites uh, this as the latest problem for email handling uh, matters uh, related to Washington. Of course, uh, Hillary Clinton and her private email server as secretary of state, on which there was no wrongdoing whatsoever. Uh, and uh, Vice President Mike Pence more recently it was discovered that uh, he used a private email account to conduct some official business as governor of Indiana. EPA's Scott Pruitt. Yep, EPA Scott Pruitt uh, also found to have used a private email address for public business while he was the Oklahoma Attorney General, and then he lied about it apparently during his uh, recent confirmation hearings, in which he uh, in which he said he never used a private email account for public business, but of course he did. We've seen the emails, so I guess lock him up, too. Got a lot of people to lock up these days. <laughs> uh, all right, my thanks to our producer, Tezzy Doyen, uh, to my guest, David Roberts of Vox.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it at, uh, for free, as you can at any time, at bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on the air and continue to do whatever the hell it is we do here on the Bradcast <laughs> five days a week. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, share us, and harass us on the Twitters at the Bradblog. That is it. Until we meet again. Uh, stay warm and dry out on the East Coast, folks. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.